Dear Father, we thank you for this epistle from John. Uh, we thank you for the church of Ephesus to which he wrote this epistle. And we thank you that uh, you provided this opportunity for your word to be taught, to be recorded, to be preserved for us to study some 2,000 years later. We thank you for all of your preserved word, for the food that it gives to our souls, so that the Spirit might use it to teach us doctrine, so that we might be empowered by the Spirit to apply this doctrine. We pray that we would be faithful to learn it and to apply it to our lives. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. As Mark said, we are continuing in 1 John. We'll be in 1 John for a few more months. We're in part two of our three-point outline for the book of 1 John. Then we're going to look at 2 John and 3 John real quick at the, uh, probably around March. But this morning we are looking at anticipating and appearing. We have a hope, something we are waiting for, and it purifies us as we keep our eyes fixed on it, and that is the appearing of Christ for his church. The main idea this morning, so that it is in your mind as we begin, is that the amazing truth behind the believer's new ability to do the things that are pleasing to God is that we have become children of God. As we've seen earlier, it's not in our flesh that we are able to do anything pleasing to God. It is only by means of the Spirit. So the Spirit works within our new spiritual nature, not within our old flesh nature. The Spirit uses God's revealed Word to teach our spirits the significance of His Word. And when time comes for application, He is the energy by which we operate. So as we've been looking at spiritual maturity, as John has addressed the fathers, the nurturers in the group, the young men who are learning and learning and learning doctrine and are about to need to apply it, and also the children in the faith, the infants. And he tells them that none of them are hindered in their ability because they all have the Spirit of God. And so now we turn to growing up. We all continue to grow up in the faith. Whether we are already mature or still maturing, there's always room to grow. In fact, Paul has the same argument in Philippians 3. He says he has not yet attained to perfect maturity. And if anyone thinks that they are perfectly mature, let them have the same attitude as Paul has, that he wants to continue to strive for what's ahead. This is spiritual growth. The moment you think you're done growing up is the moment you need to realize you've barely begun. And it starts, again, with knowing doctrine. And this isn't just reading God's Word, but this is reading and understanding God's Word. And the understanding doesn't happen in our flesh. It doesn't happen in our minds. In fact, the Spirit is the one who applies this to our hearts, who teaches us. Anyone can read God's Word and understand what the words mean. But not everyone can read it and understand its significance. The Spirit is a necessary and integral part to teaching our hearts. And even to the unbeliever, he does have a teaching ministry, but it's only for three things. Whereas for the believer, he teaches them all things. And so, once again, as John has done, I think, six times so far in this short passage, he gives them a reason that he is writing to them. He is telling them, I have written to you concerning, but this is concerning deceivers. There have been people who have come to the church of Ephesus, and they are trying to teach that church different doctrine than the apostles had brought them originally. And John is telling them to stand firm in the faith once delivered to all the saints. He says, I wrote... Uh, these things I wrote to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. He described them a few verses earlier. He says, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. Just as there is a spirit of God at work in the children of God, so there is a spirit of the Antichrist already at work in this world. 
There's really only two sides to the coin of humanity. Those who are serving God and those who are serving the world system, which belongs to Satan. Second John seven through eight, he says it in more of a summary fashion. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. This is the one who is part of that cosmos system we have talked about for the last few weeks. And so bringing up the topic of the deceivers, he draws a sharp contrast. In fact, this is a we call it a fronted nominal. He draws an unnecessary pronoun to the beginning of his passage to draw contrast. He says, on one hand, we've got these deceivers. They're coming in, they're bringing false doctrine. But on the other hand, as for you, there's something different. There is something distinct. And that is that the anointing which you received from him abides in you. And this is just a statement of fact. This is a positional truth. This is something that occurs at the moment you believe. It is not something you experience or feel. You don't feel indwelled by the Spirit. It's a truth about you when you believe. It's something that happens immediately. So he is saying there are deceivers trying to trick you, but you have the tool that you need to overcome that deception. You have no need that anyone teach you. This anyone referring back to these deceivers or anyone else who tries to teach them something different than the word of God. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it taught you, abide in him. The spirit is a doctrinal teacher. He is going to take the words that we can understand, the grammar and the syntax and even the dis discourse, and he is going to teach us the spiritual things from the mind of Christ. He abides in us. This word abiding has the idea of continuation. It is a permanent thing. That is why when we are told to abide in him, it is such a striking command. Because it has the idea of staying in and never leaving. The spirit, or rather, we are never commanded to have the spirit abiding in us, but we are commanded to abide in the spirit. Because a command has the idea of volition in it an appeal to the will. We can choose to abide in the spirit or not, but we have no choice as to whether the spirit abides in us. This is a gift. It is part of the transformed life of the believer. It is present in even the youngest Christian. And we need it. First Corinthians 2.11 For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. How are we to comprehend the words of God, their spiritual significance, without the Spirit of God himself teaching us? Without the Spirit of God himself dwelling within us and interacting with us? Now we have received perfect tense, past reality with present effect. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, not the spirit of the cosmos system, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, his word, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now this is the concept of being filled with the spirit. We're going to look at that more this morning. In John 14, 16, Jesus promised that he would send the helper and we would need this helper in order to enjoy the fellowship that he made possible through his death and resurrection, a present fellowship, whereas Israel in the past looked forward to a close intimacy with God through their Messiah. The church today looks to the present in their present intimacy with Christ and a future where that intimacy will only increase. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That another is the Greek word for another of the same kind. 
He is of the same kind, the same material as Christ. That he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And that truth came to pass at Pentecost. John 16, 8. And he, when he comes, he will convict the world. That is the cosmos system. This is what he teaches the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. These are the things that will get their hearts stirring, recognizing the inadequacy of the world. They'll recognize sin. They'll be able to understand that they fall short of the glory of God because he's also teaching them about righteousness. He's also teaching them about Christ who came in the perfect image of God and God who is absolutely perfect. And he teaches them or convicts them of judgment. The saddle to whom they have, or the, uh, how does that metaphor go? They have hitched their saddle to a lame horse. The judgment of the ruler of this world is already finished. The judgment is out. The sentence has been delivered. All that's waiting to happen is for him to be carried away into chains. This is the teaching ministry of the Spirit to the unsaved world in hopes that they would see that they have not only hitched their saddle to a lame horse, but a dead horse. It's not going anywhere, but it's going to drag them down with it. You see, Satan does not want you to turn to the Lord. He does not want you to be saved. He does not want you to have another option. Because misery enjoys company. And so does rebellion. Christianity is not narrow-minded. It is the only system that gives you a second choice. Satan's world system has only death. Only lies. Jesus offers you another way. The most diverse worldview that exists. John 16, 12, I have many more things to say to you, Jesus saying to his disciples, but you cannot bear them now. And one reason for that was because they were not yet indwelled with the Spirit. It was something that they would have to wait for until he had his abiding ministry within them. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. The Spirit is not going to teach you something that is not in Scripture. He is not going to come and teach you new words, new revelations. He is going to teach you from the Word of God. When you pull out your Bible and you begin to read, this is no longer a human activity. If it is just a human activity, it is going to be futile. But the Spirit is going to turn those words into something that you never comprehended before. When you begin to lean on the Spirit, comparing spiritual things with spiritual words, you'll begin to understand God's Word because the Spirit abides in you to teach you. He will glorify me, says the Lord, for he will take of mine and will disclose to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So it is not hyperbole when John says that the Spirit teaches us all things. Because God is the source of all truth. And he has revealed truth to us in his word. And there is nothing in his word that is unknowable. Because the Spirit teaches it. And this is a dependable source. John makes sure we know that. The Spirit's teaching is true. And it is not a lie. He has to reiterate this because, just a few verses earlier, they had been dealing with lies 
from a false source. The deceivers brought wisdom from the world, which James calls demonic, natural, fleshly. In John 2.21, John wrote, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know what the truth is, and you also know that no lie has its source in the truth. That last part is my paraphrase, because if you remember, there was some odd syntax there. So when this Holy Spirit teaches, if it is teaching the truth, which it does, we know that it must have its source in truth. This is not the spirit of the world. This is not the spirit which the deceivers are using to teach the dark things of Satan. But this is the spirit teaching the deep things of God. And so we are told to abide in him. Just as the present reality for believers at all points in their spiritual walk is that the spirit abides in them, we are commanded to reciprocate, to continue to abide in the spirit. Just as it is, just as it taught you, abide in him. This is a second person plural imperative. That means it's a command to more than one person. It's a command to the whole group that was reading. All believers are commanded to abide in him, in the spirit. But what does that mean? How do we do that? Remember, we always want to find something we can do with our hands. But the Christian life is lived in the mind. Every time we are commanded to do something, it is usually consider this. Think this way. Have this mental attitude about you. In 1 John 2.24, we already read, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Let God's word, the same word that you heard, the same word that was given to the apostles and written down in scripture and preserved for us, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning, not new doctrines. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, if that is what continues in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is different than Paul's in me phrase. Abiding in John's terminology is different than Paul's use of being in me, or even here, where he lacks the abiding. He says, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. This has to do with regeneration and rebirth. You see, the believer exits the cosmos system at one point. He goes from being unsaved to being saved. And he does so through faith on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross. There is no other requirement to salvation. There is not a requirement that you clean up your life first. In fact, there is no ability to clean up your life first. You can stop doing some bad things that you're doing. But that's not actually going to clean up your life because what's lacking is Christ's righteousness. And so trusting in him instead of yourself puts you in a saved position. And this is a permanent position. And within that saved position, we can either live like it or not. We are all exhorted to live like it. In fact, the moment we enter into the saved position, we enter into fellowship. We have to exit that fellowship in order to break it. But there is one thing we cannot do. We cannot exit our saved position. We can live like the world and you will have a terrible life. Or you can live spirit-filled, trusting God's word. Rather than living with one foot in the spiritual world and one foot in the cosmos world, being filled with the Spirit means putting both feet firmly on God's Word, trusting what He has to reveal to us. And so this concept of Him being in us and us being in Him, this is the concept of regeneration, 
or spirit baptism, which is identification with his death and resurrection and being indwelt with the spirit. To put it in a better graphic, it refers to our right relationship with Jesus and our right relationship with the spirit. The arrows that are purple are permanent relationships. Things that happen not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done and because of what the Spirit does, the moment of salvation. The moment of salvation, we are regenerated. We are born again, not of flesh, but of spirit. This is how we are able to interact with God on a spiritual level, because we have been made in his image in the spirit. And we are also baptized into him. Now, baptism is loaded with a bunch of historical theology that is, frankly, trash. Baptizing is simply the Greek word for immersion. We are immersed into him. We are dipped into him like a cloth is dipped into dye, and when we come out, we are changed. This is not something we do to ourselves. This is something that is done to us. We are then identified with Christ. His blood has washed us clean and his life has given us life. This is what it means to be baptized in him. Notice that both arrows are purple on the right side, left side. Our relationship to Jesus is firmly secured. We are in him and he is in us. With the Spirit, He indwells us. This is His activity towards us. The moment we believe, He comes and makes a permanent home. We are only ever commanded to be filled by the Holy Spirit. This is the only relationship term that is put in an imperative that has a volitional aspect to it. Because this also has nothing to do with our eternal security, our promise of glorification, but it has all to do with our ability to do good works. Because without being filled with the Spirit, we can't understand the will of God. And without the filling of the Spirit, we have no power to do the will of God. This has to do with rewards, not salvation. And so what is that spiritual power? Remember, there are two power sources. One fuels the world system. That kingdom that has imposed its will against God's will. It gives you enough power to rebel against God, but not to do anything good. It gives you enough power to kill yourself, but not to have life. But God's spirit, on the other hand, gives you power to live life and to live it abundantly. They are two different energy sources. The world system or God's kingdom. Which one have we attached our power source to? Are we drawing power out of the world? Filling our minds with the world's way of thinking. The world's way of looking at things. Or are we filling our minds with God's word? and understanding the truth of how things actually are. And when we go to act, are we acting on the power of the flesh, which, as Isaiah tells us, is simply filthy rags? Or are we acting on the power of Christ through the indwelling of the Spirit to do God's will, In order to do so, we need to be filled with the Spirit. There's a misconception in English, not in Greek, about the syntax of this. When we hear be filled with the Spirit, we automatically in our minds think the Spirit needs to be poured into us. That we need to be filled up with the Holy Spirit. So this morning when I passed a church sign, I saw a request, come Holy Spirit. And I kind of just shook my head. They don't understand that he's already there. They don't understand that he has already filled them. 
He has already come to dwell within them because he is not the content that they need to be filled with. He is the agent by which they need to be filled. He is the actor in the verb of filling. He is not the content of the verb of filling. What he fills us with is God's word. What he fills us with is understanding of God's word. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now John could have chosen anything to tell us not to be gluttons over. He specifically chose wine. Because wine, when it's drunk in excess, has a controlling aspect to it. When the mind is filled with wine, it works its way out into the actions of the body. When a mind is filled with wine, it is controlled. But that is dissipation. We are told to be filled with the Spirit, to allow the Spirit to have control over our minds and our bodies. And the last part of this verse is not a throwaway. This is really explaining what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. When one is filled with the Spirit, this is the product. This is what comes out. When Paul wrote this to the Ephesian church, he also penned another letter to the church of Colossia. And he wrote almost two identical letters. They are strikingly similar. But he writes to the Ephesians about the body of Christ, about what the church is and all the riches of grace that belong to her, and also her responsibility while living in the body of Christ. But to the church of Colossia, he wrote about the headship of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, that Christ and who he is is all we need to live the spiritual life. And so what he used an idiom with in Ephesians, he speaks more plainly in Colossians 3.16. These are parallel verses. They teach the same exact thing. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. This is the content that the Spirit fills us with. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Being filled with or by the Spirit is being filled with God's Word and letting it take over. Letting that instruct how our minds think and how our bodies operate. And we are told to stay filled. Let it continue to have that controlling influence. Let it continue to fill you up. Ephesians 4.30, we are told not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? That when he teaches us Bible doctrine, we should not reject it. When the Holy Spirit is teaching us, revealing God's word, speaking to us on that spiritual level, we can choose to say, no, I heard something different from the world. I think I'll adopt that instead. Or we can choose to say, yes, because you are the source of truth and not the world. We're also told not to quench the spirit. It says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every evil. Quenching the Spirit happens if the Spirit has not been grieved, but if we just simply refuse to do what the Spirit has instructed us to do. One is on the learning side of the coin. The other is on the application side of the coin. When we have learned Bible doctrine but refuse to let it be applied to our lives, this is quenching the Spirit. When the Spirit reveals the will of God through His Word, and we say, no, I think I'll do my will instead. 
This puts us out of fellowship with the Spirit. This is not a Spirit-filled life. When we refuse God's doctrine and when we refuse to live by God's doctrine. But once again, we want to look for some activity that we can do to put us back in fellowship with the Spirit. But once again, it is an activity of the mind. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And confession is not something we do with our mouths, it is something we do with our minds. Because we are not here told to make a public profession but we are simply told to agree with God. Which is really what got us out of fellowship was disagreement. We heard the word and we said, nope, that's not for me. That puts us out of fellowship. How do we get back in fellowship? How do we continue to be spirit-filled so that it can teach and use us? We do the opposite thing. We agree with him. When we read his word, we adopt it as our way of thinking. And we can do all this because we have become children of God. No longer are we children of the world in the image of Adam and in his death, but children of God in the image of his son and given life. And here, John expands his audience. Up until now, we've still been talking to the paideia, if you remember that term. Now he is talking, talking to the technia. Both are rendered in the English translation as children. But both are not the same kind of children. John uses three different words for son or child. Huios, which has the idea of legal sonship or an heir. Someone who is not physically born of another's genes can still become a huios. We are sons of God in this way as well. We have been made heirs through a legal contract. But we are also technion. This is not something that can be adopted to someone by any other means than regeneration or progeneration. These both have to do with relationship. The concept of huias and of technion both depend on two people the person to whom they are related as a son, and the son himself. But the paideia has only to do with maturity, without reference to relationship. So those who were infants in Christ, the idea is simply they are yet immature. They are children, or kids. Whereas the technion are children or seed. They have actually come from that nature. And so John says, now little children. He's expanding his audience beyond just those who are immature and need to grow up to every single one of God's children. Everyone who has ever put their faith in Christ and so been regenerated. This command is for them. And it's the same exact command that he gave in the last clause of verse 27. Abide in him. A second person, plural, imperative. Everyone who hears this is commanded to do that, to abide in him. And he gives a purpose. This is a purpose clause so that he gives us the reason we are to abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. The word when actually is not when in the Greek. It's the Greek word for if. But this causes some confusion. So the NASB has rightly uh, clarified that confusion. But I think it's worth diving into what John's actually doing with this if clause. You see, some people want to say if he appears means there's a possibility he may not appear. But in the next clause, we have this condition that we may have confidence in him. 
Usually when we have a uh, conditional clause, a protasis with an apodosis, we get one subjunctive verb. Subjunctive is the verb tense of uncertainty. That means it may or may not happen. But both of these verbs are in the subjunctive, which is unnatural. It's not normal for Greek syntax. But the he appears is controlled by the so that clause. You see, there is a second use of subjunctive. In a purpose clause or a hina clause, we call it in the Greek, the verb has to be in the subjunctive. But the we may have confidence should be in the future tense, unless the if clause is controlling that verb. You see, there is no question about whether Christ is going to appear. He will. Hopefully soon. The question is, when he appears, will we be able to stand confidently before him in the way that we have lived our lives? Or will we shrink away from him in shame? The question is, how did we live our lives? He has given us riches of grace. He has poured them on us. And many times, for many Christians, we simply turn our nose and say, no, thank you for salvation. I am going to continue to live on the streets with my drug-infested life. When God has given you the keys to a mansion and said, it's yours, go in and enjoy. We know that he will appear. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now if he returns today, verse 17 applies to us. If he returns in, say, a hundred years, verse 16 will apply to us. Either way, we're caught up in this return. Either way, this will have an effect on us. And what is that effect? Paul talks about it more than anyone else in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.9, he says, We also have this as our ambition, that whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. He wants to continue to run the race well. He wants to have confidence, not shame. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And you say, wait, pastor, I thought you said salvation is not based on works, but based on faith. Why are they being judged for their works here? Simply because this is not a judgment that has reference to salvation. Only those who are saved will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We are expecting or anticipating this award ceremony for the life lived for Christ. But there is a lot of confusion out there about when this will occur and who will be present. And so I've put together a little outline of the program that scripture teaches for judgments and resurrection. You see, the first resurrection, the first fruits from the dead, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, was Christ. And remember, we are baptized into his death and also into his resurrection. He is the first fruits because we are the harvest coming after him. His resurrection took place immediately after, or well, a few days after his death. He was raised again on the third day. And then he ascended into heaven as well. And he was seated at the right hand of the Father, being rewarded for his service on earth. And there is a second resurrection and judgment. The church will be resurrected and immediately pass through the Bema Seat judgment. 
where we will be assessed for how we lived our lives. What we did in the spirit will be rewarded, and what we did in the flesh will be burned up. This is spoken about as well in 1 Corinthians 3 and in Romans 14. In the middle of the tribulation, there will be two witnesses that are assassinated by the Antichrist. These two witnesses will be resurrected. And there is a very specific reason for that because these are the third sign that Jesus gives to Israel, that the Messiah has come and that he is Jesus. The first one was Lazarus. The second one was himself. And now, at the beginning of the day of the Lord, the midpoint of the tribulation, Jesus will give them that final sign in the form of a resurrection. And many of them will heed it and flee to Petra to be preserved. At the end of the tribulation, there is another judgment spoken of. This is a judgment without reference to resurrection. Because this is a judgment for physical life or physical death. It is a somewhat harrowing judgment. We read about it at the end of Matthew 25. We also see it in Ezekiel 20, Zechariah 13, and many other places. That at the end of the tribulation period, all surviving Jews will be gathered together. Those who have received the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be allowed to enter alive into the kingdom. And those who have refused the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be slaughtered and await the final judgment. There is an additional judgment at the same time, perhaps immediately following this judgment of the Jews. And this is for the surviving Gentiles. This is called the sheep and the goat judgment, where they will be divided based on whether they received the gospel that came through Israel whether they sided with the Messiah or with the Antichrist. Those who opposed the world system and received by faith the Messiah will be or will enter alive into the kingdom. After the tribulation period at the beginning of the kingdom, we read in Revelation 20 and in Matthew 24, that all of Israel from the past will be resurrected to enter into the kingdom. Daniel 12 gives this promise specifically to Daniel. Revelation 20 also tells us of the Old Testament saints, those who preceded Israel. They will also be resurrected at this time to enjoy the kingdom. And all of those who were killed during the tribulation, the tribulation martyrs, will be resurrected at this time as well. And that leaves one last resurrection. In fact, everything that we've looked at so far has been part of one resurrection, the first resurrection, that has its source in Christ. But there is a second resurrection. And this is at the end of world history, after the kingdom, and before we enter into the eternal state. And this is the resurrection of the wicked dead, into their eternal bodies, which do not perish in fire. And they will endure eternal punishment. This is the great white throne judgment. And this assesses degree of punishment. Just as the church is awarded for their degree of glory, for how much they have allowed the spirit to work through them, so the wicked dead are assessed for their degree of punishment. If you have met anyone in your life, and I'm sure you have, that has refused Christ, let this judgment sit in the back of your mind. And when you look at them, think of this. And let that spur you on to share with them the gift that you have, because you have an anticipation of his coming. The world has a dread of his coming, a fear 
of his coming. And now the worst that can happen on the day that he comes back is that we will be ashamed of the way that we lived, of what we did with his gifts. But we will never have to stand before his throne on the basis of judgment for our salvation because that has been taken care of on his cross. That is finished work. It's done and it cannot be undone. Just like we are children of God, we are born ones, we are technia. Once a birth has occurred, it cannot be reversed. You can mute the process of it by killing what has come out of it, but you cannot change the fact that they have been born. And so we take part in this judgment. This is the best or the worst that it will get for us. Shame or confidence. The judgment seat of Christ is only for the church. Israel is not resurrected at this time. Israel is not rewarded at this time. And unbelievers will not stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It is only for rewards. No one will be cast out of the kingdom. No one will be penalized. The worst that can happen in front of the judgment seat of Christ is to receive a lack of rewards where there could have been rewards because we chose to live in the flesh instead of in the spirit. And the timing is immediately after the rapture. When we see the church in heaven in Revelation 4, we see that they have already been rewarded before the tribulation begins on the earth. And the basis is obedience. Obedience to his word. You cannot judge an unbeliever on obedience to Christ because he has no ability to obey. He has a slave master that is the God of this world. There is only one thing that an unbeliever can do in obedience to God, and that is to believe in Jesus Christ, to shift trust from self to Christ for our eternal destiny. And so we want to stand before the throne of God, the throne of Christ, with confidence in how we lived this life. And as we'll see, it's not so much what we do, but where our focus is as we live our lives. John 15, 4 through 5. Jesus speaking to his disciples says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches, and he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Now a grapevine is a grapevine whether or not it's attached to its stock but it will be unfruitful if it is detached. And in fact, the very being of a branch, or actually the product of the branch, does not determine what the plant is. If you have an apple tree, it's not an apple tree because it produces apples. If it doesn't produce apples, it's still an apple tree. But we want to be fruitful children of God. The only reason we can produce fruit is because we're in God. But there is the option, the opportunity, the negative opportunity for Christians to be unfruitful in their lives. In 1 John 4, 16, when John comes back to this in his third cycle, he says that God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. And by this, love is perfected with us. It is brought to its perfect conclusion. So that, or for the reason, for the purpose that, we may have confidence in the day of judgment. And the only judgment that we will see is before the throne of Christ. Because he is, so also are we in this world. We have been given the ability to live like him. 
because the Spirit dwells in us. Remember, that was one of the important aspects of Christ coming in the flesh. As Philippians 2 says, when he divested himself of all of his glory, not using the power of the second person of the Godhead, not using his own divine power, he chose that his flesh would be powered by the third person of the Trinity. So that when Christ came and acted on this earth, he did so by the power of another, by the filling of the Spirit. And so we, being of the same material flesh that he was when he walked this earth, and being filled by the same Holy Spirit that he was filled with by this earth, he has given us an analog by which we can also represent him on this earth. We also learn that the Spirit, or that the, yeah, the Spirit teaches us who God is. It says, if you know that he is righteous, then you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Now John uses both Greek words here for knowing. If you know as a matter of fact that God is righteous, then you will know by experience that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And this is something that the Spirit teaches, this factual knowledge. He teaches us to understand that God is righteous. And this is really everywhere in Scripture. And the Spirit teaches us these things. Psalm 71, 19, For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. When we understand the righteousness of God, the perfection of God, his holiness, when we understand who he is, we get a better perspective, a right perspective of who we are. Psalm 14, 2. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is something the Spirit rectifies. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. John said essentially, essentially the same thing two chapters earlier. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We have not understood his word if we cannot rightly assess ourselves and rightly assess him. The issue is not, are we good people or bad people, but are we perfect or imperfect? Because that is the standard of righteousness. And mankind is imperfect. But we have imputed to us, given to us as a gift, not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness of Christ. The only possible way that we can be righteous. And so this statement that John makes, everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him, this is profound. Be careful though here. We have a tendency to read John backwards. John said everyone who practices righteousness is born of him, born of God. John did not say, everyone who is born of him practices righteousness. We're tempted to read it this way. Can you cite the difference? Just because someone is born of him does not mean that we will act like it. But if we are acting like one who is born of him, then we have to be. Because there is no other source of righteousness than Christ. John's very good at stating his negative corollaries when there is one. We should avoid the temptation to provide it for him. In fact, look at how well he does this. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. 
If he didn't have his second statement, we might want to say that whoever doesn't deny the Son has the Father. But that's not what he says. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. There is, notice, an in-between state here. One who has the Father but does not confess him. The carnal believer. The one who is not doing the righteousness of the Father, but has the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. We have to be very careful when we read scripture. Not to fill in gaps. But to understand what is being said. We know then that if someone is acting righteously, and this is not righteousness as the world has it. You can read James 3 and see that there is a wisdom that comes from above and a wisdom that comes from below. Both are considered wisdom. One is the wisdom of the world. The ability to get ahead by getting one up on another. But there is a wisdom that comes from above, a wisdom that comes from God. And if one is practicing this sort of righteousness, the sort of righteousness that is described of God, then there is only one conclusion that this person has been born again because there's no other source of that sort of righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and he has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. He has lavished on us righteousness as well. Countless Christians fail to walk in this righteousness because we try to do it by our flesh. Thank you, Jesus, for clothing me in righteousness. Now let me do righteousness on my own. It doesn't work that way. The yielded believer, the one who understands that Whatever good is coming out of him is not coming from his flesh, but is coming from God through him. Just like an apple tree, if it had a brain, might understand that its branch is not actually producing that apple. But it's the tree working to produce an apple through the branch. So it is God, by means of the Spirit, working to produce good works through us. The only source of righteousness is God. And let us be vessels for his work. 1 John 3.1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. This has been the consistent message of John since his first letter, his gospel that he wrote five years earlier. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, receiving a new nature. We see this concept all the way back in the very beginning of Genesis. In the day when God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. Adam was made in the image of the one who made him. And he created male and female. He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. But Genesis 5.3 tells, well, tells the next chapter. It skips over the, path, the part where Adam and Eve sin where they fall, where they break fellowship with God, and where salvation is needed. But they are now different kinds of creatures, no longer standing in unconfirmed holiness in the perfection that God created them, but having corrupted themselves, both physically and spiritually, by means of sin. When they reproduce, they reproduce in their own image. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now Seth still bore the image of God, but in a corrupt form. His flesh was now bound to death, and he needed a solution. 
Two verses later, Adam dies. Five verses later, Seth dies. Ten generations continue, and each one is punctuated with, and he died, and he died, and he died. There is a problem that entered into our nature at the beginning of the human race, right with Adam, because God made creation this way. He made creation to reproduce, to copy itself. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. When Adam produces from his own seed, he produces in his own image. And his own image had become corrupt by sin. Romans 5.17, if by the transgression of one then, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. So also it was written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. And ever since Adam, with every generation of reproduction, each one has become a living soul in the flesh. But the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So that when we are reborn in Christ, when we are regenerated, when Christ lives in us, his life lives in us. And his righteousness becomes possible by means of the spirit. So that we might have confidence when he appears for us. Beloved, now we are children of God. This is a positional truth. You have been born again, and nothing can undo that. But you are not yet fully what you will be. Just as a baby, when it is newborn, does not have all of the attributes that an adult has. So we, having been born in Christ, have not yet grown into the fullness of what we will become. And while we are in this flesh, as Paul calls it, this dead man, I can't remember exactly how he puts it, the end of Romans 7, this body of death, as long as that is attached to us, we will not reach the perfection that is in Christ. But he will make us like him when he appears. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. This is something we are longing for. In fact, personally, I think this is way better than the rewards we look forward to. Now, I say that in a human sense because Rewards actually aren't for our glory, but for his glory. What from our lives will work together to glorify God in eternity? That's the basis of rewards. But here's the thing that really will personally affect me and will personally affect you more than anything else. When you are finally conformed to his image, when your perfect position in him becomes your perfect experience in him, Philippians 3.7 Whatever was gained to me, Paul writes, I regarded that as loss on account of Christ. Everything that he held dear in the world system, it meant nothing to him when he came to know Christ. But more than that, I count all things to be loss because of the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as worthless filth, so that I might gain Christ and be found in him, abiding in him, not having my righteousness, which comes from the law, but which is through faith in Christ, which comes from God, righteousness on the basis of faith, to know him, that is the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings while being conformed to his death. 
in verse 20, but as for you, our citizenship exists in the heavenly realm, from which also we are eagerly awaiting the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our humble body into conformity with the body of his glory, according to the operative power of his ability to subject all things to himself. And Paul concludes there, So then, my beloved brothers, whom I greatly long for, my joy and my crown, in this we stand firm in the Lord. We stand firm on his word. We stand firm in the application of his word. We stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And John gives us this great little verse here. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Notice that our hope is fixed on him, not ourselves and what we will become, but fixed on him. Yes, it is wonderful to look forward to when we are glorified, when we are shed of this body of death. We are conformed to his glory, but we will still be reflecting his glory. We keep our eyes on the source. We keep our eyes on his glory. Like keeping our eyes on the horizon so that we might drive straight. We keep our eyes on the appearing of Christ so that we might live straight. We don't get muddied down in the weeds. We don't get upset and depressed that we're not growing up fast enough. Because the moment you stop looking at him and start looking at yourself and start wondering, why isn't this working? What am I doing wrong? I'm not doing enough. What you're doing wrong is not focusing on him. Not having your mind fully occupied with him and his righteousness and all that he has done. Because when your mind is so occupied with that, filled with the Spirit, filled with His Word, it works its way out into your members, into your body. And the Spirit will do the work of God through you. The amazing truth behind the believer's new ability to do the things that are pleasing to God is that we have become children of God. The Spirit works within our new spiritual nature, not within our old flesh nature. The Spirit uses God's revealed word to teach our spirits the significance of his word. And when time comes for application, he is the energy by which we operate. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the amazing gift of the Spirit. We thank you for its teaching ministry both to us and to the world. And we thank you for the power that it gives us to live a spiritual life. We pray that all that we do might be glorifying to you as we keep our eyes firmly trained on you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.